All right. So you know what really grinds my gears? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> now, what a way to start. A wrench. <laughs> I've been seeing a lot of really fucking weak takes on the World Cup. And I know everybody that listens to this is also probably annoyed about hearing a lot of takes about the World Cup, so I'm just going to add to that well, annoyance. Well, you know, going, people care about <laughs> beer more than anything, Dan. More than soccer, especially <laughs> just, in the United States. <laughs> I have seen so many people trying to make this bizarre, like, anti-imperialist take that it is wrong or hypocritical to call out the World Cup being in Qatar because of the massive human rights abuses associated with it, because sometimes the World Cup is held in other countries that are also bad. I mean, has it been held in the U.S., for instance? <laughs> but, <laughs> like, my, but my point question, is, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, okay, if you want to call out, like, U.S. liberals or whatever, who are suddenly concerned because the World Cup's in Qatar and never say anything mm-hmm. in any of the other times, sure, go for it. But the number of people I've seen trying to be like, anybody who's denouncing the World Cup being in Qatar is, is a total hypocrite. I'm like, Qatar is a slave state. Like, we should yeah. talk about that. And, well, and Qatar also, like, as far as I know, isn't a direct <laughs> client state of the U.S., but in many ways it's like a client state of many client states no, of the U.S. in the region, like it's Qatar one step is, removed. Qatar yeah. is a is a U.S. client state. Their their security is entirely dependent on the United oh, cool. States military. <laughs> okay, I was wondering if it was like laundered through Saudi Arabia or you know India I, or something like that. But I mean, the whole region, all of the Gulf monarchies are clients of the United States. Sure. That's how their monarchies continue to exist. Like, so and, also and, it's it's extremely funny to be like, oh, it's actually uh, not. It's actually imperialist to criticize a U.S. client. state. State. That yeah, what are that's you talking about? <laughs> that's my thing. My, I'm like, look, because the point here is, is that if you want to say like, yes, if somebody's only critiquing this World Cup mm-hmm. and they've never cared about any of the other ones, yeah, they are a hypocrite. But guess what? Most of the people critiquing it criticize every World Cup and every Olympics because they're all fucking nightmares yeah. that destroy the the working class, no matter where they're held. Like the one in twenty, the one the most recent one that was in Brazil, that was also a nightmare. I was criticizing that one before I was a communist. You like don't have to be this far on the left to know that like FIFA and the IOC are two of the most corrupt like bodies on the planet, and they yeah. only bring like devastation with them. Like in how many like stories did people find about like the clearing of the favelas and like attacks on homeless people in brazil during the world cup and i mean in the u.s we see vast sums of money like like just thrown away on these gigantic stadiums which then often you know do like wage theft against the migrant workers who build the stadiums they often displace like black and poor neighborhoods so like yeah, the World Cup's bad when it's in the U.S. too. That doesn't absolve. That doesn't like mean we should not critique a, a a country whose entire economy is based on slavery. Seventy-five percent of the population of Qatar is migrant laborers, imported and most of the time trapped by the kafala system and forced to work there in horrific conditions for slave wages. So, like, I'm fucking tired of the stupid like the <laughs> anti-imperialism of fools on the internet that says that you can't criticize a fucking monarchy because I, some other people are dumb and didn't criticize the events when they're held in the U.S. and Western Europe. Like, I, 
I mean, like we. This was actually one of the things that was part of our first sl- slavery in the modern day series back in the you know seven episodes seventies and eighties, you know, mm-hmm. or sixties and seventies. It was, or was it all the way back in the fifth? The episodes of the fifty. Either way, you know, like, I actually think it was earlier than that. I think it was like right yeah. after I came on the show, so I think it's in like the thirties. <laughs> I think you were on like thirty four or thirty six or something like that. I'm not sure. Whatever, it doesn't matter. We don't have to tread that. You can go back and do do your own research, folks. And, yeah, and, well, and it, it is just ridiculous for like people to go to bat and be like, actually, uh, the anti-imperialist stance is to uh, not pay attention to the slave labor conditions that are building, you know, the infrastructure for this sporting event in Qatar, which you know a lot of people don't realize is basically just the city of Doha. Like I think something mm-hmm. to the effect of 80% of people who yep. live in Qatar live in Doha. So it's like, you know, it, 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 you don't want to paint whole nations with a broad brush, but sometimes whole nations are just like a city and the outlying areas of that city. <laughs> also like, there's no, there's no, nothing like about critiquing the World Cup being in Qatar that stops you from tying it to the U.S. You can, you can very easily say that like this is horrible because literally six thousand migrant workers died mm-hmm. in the process of building these stadiums, and the only reason that this incredibly rich monarchy continues to exist is because it pays protection money to the U.S. So you can you can easily tie the critique back to a critique of the U.S. You don't have to pretend that it's impossible to do that. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think people might be more willing to do that if the popular media around the United States wasn't focused on the fact that they were like, actually, we're banning beer at the yeah. World Cup. Yeah. You can't have a beer And the Australian <laughs> soccer fans are like, might don't fuck with me anyway uh (laughs) for more international news you can keep listening to you're already quite a few minutes into at this point so uh thank you for listening and thank you for supporting the show we are 100 listener supported if you're a patreon supporter and you don't have stickers yet message us on patreon and we will get them to you uh no matter who you are you can jump in the discord it's a great place to hang out and learn more about the stuff we talk about on the show and if you want to help the show a little bit more you can leave us a five-star review on apple podcasts or you can argue with somebody who tells you that criticizing the world cup in qatar is actually imperialist and you can tell them that this show told you so. Um, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, told you, told you that that's not the case. Whatever. You know what I mean. My name is John. I'm Dan, and I apologize for subjecting you to that very long rant. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Lena. I'm not sorry. And we collectively are going to start the show today officially by following up with QP, who has called off their strike and signed a tentative agreement. So these are the workers in uh, Ontario that we had been talking about who had been experiencing refusal from the right-wing Ford administration to offer any real raises for the school staff. And in response, uh, QP leadership did actually end up signing a last-minute tentative agreement calling off a potential strike, which would have been launched today, the date of recording. 
recording November 21st. Every indication shows this deal as a huge victory for the anti-worker government and a loss for labor, particularly because the conditions that, as we previously outlined, weren't even close to keeping up with the rate of inflation in Canada, which is comparable and, in fact, I think even slightly higher than it is in the United States right now. Yeah, yeah, I mean the the whole uh, like impetus of this is around it being a like fifteen percent raise, which is pretty misleading because the new agreement only provides for a four percent wage for each year, uh, and to only to the lowest paid workers, about uh, you know less than two percent for higher paid workers. And this kind of uh, you know since this is spread out over four years, and I, this is again is from twenty. 16 right like or is this from 2020 it's i believe from 2020 2020 yeah so this is from 2020 and the actual inflation if you add it up you know this would still result in a pay cut for the workers you know in the in the scheme of how inflation has um gone up over these past years in the pandemic yeah like the because that's the thing is the media because like you know i'm this is mostly coming out of reporting from the toronto star which has been like one of the primary sources of use for this and yeah they talk about it as, oh this this contract has a 15 percent raise which sounds great but you only get to that by compounding a four percent raise each year and that's not great when you consider the fact that canadian inflation right now is at eight going on nine percent and will likely you know actually get revised to be a little higher after the end of the year so for the highest the lowest paid workers who are getting a slightly higher raise out of this deal the the four year term of the contract is barely going to cover inflation for just this year and th- for the quote unquote higher paid workers who are getting a smaller raise these are workers making 70,000 uh, Canadian dollars or more uh again if you're living in Toronto or any of like you know the cities in Ontario uh that 70,000 isn't necessarily going to go that long of a way so it's not really great not really very accurate to consider them like highly paid workers but those folks getting less than a two percent raise each year of this contract they're barely going to cover this year's inflation by the end of it it's so like the this and again in comparison the union was asking for an immediate 11 percent raise for those lower paid workers because again they're paid an average of thirty nine thousand dollars a year right now which is nothing you can't like that and then the the currency exchange between the U.S. and Canadian dollars is like it's relatively close, I believe, right now. So like uh, those numbers aren't too far off from each other for our like American listeners. Like that's just it's simply not enough money. And the idea that an eleven percent immediate raise is a ridiculous thing to do again would only raise their their salary to forty three thousand dollars, which is still probably too low to live on. And yet, because of the way that the union kind of voluntarily gave up leverage, they were able to be forced into this situation. Because again, for our list, like to go back to the story of how we all got here, you know, like originally QP had built a big labor coalition to fight back against the draconian anti-strike law, Bill 28, that was passed by the Ford administration. They were able to get public sector unions, private sector unions from all over Ontario to come together, support their two-day strike that they had launched in defiance of that bill, and really ready to launch a a province-wide general strike. But when basically the Ford administration blinked and said, okay, well, we don't want that, Uh, we'll repeal the bill as long as you call off the general strike, and at the time, we were like, well, you know, I mean, I'm glad that they stopped the bill, but this isn't everything. And it's pretty clear, I think, now 
that the, the better move would have been to go forward with the strike, to say, yeah, we need to get rid of that bill, but this whole thing started because we were not being offered a fair contract. And without a fair contract, our workers like can't really survive. And so it, yeah. the, the demands, I, I think, should have been not just repeal the bill, but also repeal the bill and offer a fair contract and taking advantage of the leverage and all of that solidarity that had been built. Because in the last two weeks since that strike was called off, once that's that, like, that energy had been built up and was then allowed to dissipate, that really removed so much of the leverage that QP had. And QP was basically left alone to, to negotiate with the Ford administration again, who just basically decided not to offer them anything and to say, you know what, we know that we've now got these other unions to you know, back away from supporting you by getting rid of the, that law that would ban strikes. So we bet we can force you into accepting a shitty deal like this. Yeah, I think it goes back to like having an actual comprehensive list of demands similar to like what we talked about in the Panama situation where they, you know, had gotten like what four out of seven uh, demands. And then the, the mm-hmm. joke was, is now it's going to be, you know, six of, of of nine demands or something like that you know to actually make sure that when you have that sort of power that you wield it uh, appropriately and and have it have it so that it's a sustainable movement so i mean like and this isn't necessarily the end of this struggle i mean the workers still have to vote on whether or not to accept the deal and i mean it's pretty possible that they could reject it because i mean as it's pointed out is uh is a it's a wage cut uh so I, I think that we will still be seeing the way that this is going to come down. And uh, if the workers do reject this, that maybe part of that coalition isn't entirely like dissolved, that, that there is still some of that support there, and we can still hope for that. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, but yeah, we'll, so we'll... We'll see what happens. Uh, if if they you know if they do vote to reject it, we'll certainly be be following up on that on the show. Um, but moving on, continuing with our international follow ups, uh, the strike by the posties uh, at the Royal Mail in the UK has been extended as the basically the threats from the company continue to rise. So, you know, we we had our interview with Gary Banks from the Royal Mail a few weeks ago, which was really great. If you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend it. Uh, we learned a lot. And so, you know, obviously there have been several days that the 115,000 Royal Mail workers have gone on strike uh, trying to force the company back to the table to negotiate an actual fair contract for their workers. But the... Since, you know, they they announced their strike and have launched several strike days, the company has completely refused to do so. Like the CWU, the union that represents the workers, put out a statement saying, quote, those in charge of Royal Mail need to wake up and realize we won't allow them to destroy the livelihoods of postal workers. And what they're referring to there is the fact that, again, like while the company continues to claim poverty, uh, saying that they're losing a million pounds a day, they had just prior earlier in the summer said they had a 758 million pound record profit. So you have the company essentially using creative accounting to lie about their uh, their the state of their financials in order to justify trying to give workers a shittier contract, and and so. The, the union has instead responded to, to that by basically pointing out that, look, fine, if you want to believe that they're, only, that they're losing a million pounds a day, all that does is further underline our point, the union, that we can't trust the mail 
to be in the hands of these private companies because they just run it into the ground in the pursuit of, of maximum profit. And so the 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 union has refused to back down from their demand for a 9% uh, pay rate for workers, which frankly is like a really mild ask considering mm-hmm. uh, the UK's inflation is over 11%. So well, and, and, and it's it's also fairly mild in the face of like all of the continued activity that this fucking private company mm-hmm. has been, uh, you know, undergoing without even blinking. They, you know, during this same time, they notified the state that they intend to lay off 10,000 workers by August of next year and that they also want to suspend Saturday letter delivery. Suspend means eliminate uh, to yeah. cut costs. And it's got to be like. You know, I, I, I don't know who works in these offices that they report to at the state, but when you, you get a note like this from the Royal Mail, you've got to think, like, why did we ever let this fall into private hands? You know, this yeah. is, like, shameful. Saturday mail delivery is, like, critical infrastructure. Like, let's be mm-hmm. real. It might not seem like it, but, like, it's very important that people sometimes receive what could be critical or life-changing bits of mail on Saturday. Yeah. yeah, I do think that people forget a little bit about how much mail is important, whether it be, you know, just running basic functions or even just people being able to live their lives as human beings, communicating with one another. These are essential to us being able to exist as humans on this earth. Yeah, well, and and it's just... It's so wild that at the same time that they're saying that, no, privatizing the mail was a great idea, it makes everything more efficient, it's better for the taxpayer, they're also simultaneously coming to the state and saying, also, by the way, we want to fire 10,000 people and stop delivering the mail on Saturday. Like, we want to to make the mail worse, and we want to fire a ton of people. By us asking for these things, you can see how good a job we're doing running this service. Like, yeah, we're so innovative and disruptive. We're we're over here making sure that we because that's the thing is it's like they're they're chasing profits, but the perverse logic of capitalism lets you just chase money for yourself and then be like look, I'm doing a great job. And the guys in the state have to kind of like, because of the ideological constraints they're under, be like, yeah, you are doing a great job. Meanwhile, you're destroying a necessary part of society. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So CWU Sec- General Secretary Dave Ward responded to their failure to negotiate, saying, quote, the truth is that the current senior leadership of Royal Mail have been treating employees, union representatives, or future investors with a lack of integrity and transparency. Postal workers need a deal that works for them, the communities they love, and the industry they loyally serve, not one that covers up for chief executive and boardroom failures. The CWU or this country will never accept Royal Mail becoming another Uber-style gig economy courier, end quote. And so the union announced that in addition to the eight strike days they've already held so far, Royal Mail workers will strike again on November 24th, 25th, and 30th, and they will also strike on six days in December, including Christmas Eve. So I think it's it's really good to see like the CWU sticking to their guns, saying that like not like cowing in the in the face of you know the unity of the right-wing tory government mm-hmm. and the privatized owners of the royal mail and being like i don't it's like you can have all you can buy all the government ministers you want a fair deal is a fair deal and we're not going to back down from it so you know yeah. really encouraged to see this this level of, of strength and militancy from the cwu 
Yeah, and in additional stories about privatized ownership of critical infrastructure, we're going to be moving back to the United States uh, to speak on the rail strike, which we have not actually gotten to cover because there hasn't been as many developments recently. But as of this morning, uh, we're recording on November 21st, uh, The after two months, you know, there hasn't been a, a much movement on the rail strike, which we had covered before and done that episode with uh, uh, with Justin from, well, there's your problem. And uh, so what has happened is more unions have voted, including the two biggest unions, BLET and Smart TD. And we've got a, you know, a mixture of what has happened there because the BLET workers voted narrowly uh, 53% to 46% in favor of the TA. But Smart TD and its 28,000 members voted 51% in favor of rejecting the deal, making the rail strike much more likely. And, I mean, both of these elections have had a record high voter turnout for these elections. We have Smart TD President Jeremy Ferguson, who said in a statement, The ball is now in the railroad's court. Let's see what they do. They can settle this at the bargaining table. But the railroad executives who consistently complain about government interference and regularly badmouth regulators and Congress now want Congress to do the bargaining for them, which is a a statement kind of floating around the fact that the railroads have consistently said that Congress should just prevent the strike. They should come in and create some sort of injunction that would make it so that it's basically illegal for these workers to strike, not only enforcing the incredibly onerous and an unfair practices of the Railway Labor Act, which make it very difficult for workers to strike because, honestly, they would have struck a long time ago had the Railway Labor Act been similar to the NLRA. But to say that even if they do go through all these processes, it doesn't fucking matter because they're just going to have Congress say, fuck you to the workers. Yeah, well, and it's interesting, too, because this uh, this vote by Smart TD essentially has put a timer on the rail companies and the mm-hmm. politicians that represent them, uh, now giving them two and a half weeks to try and reach another deal to prevent a rail strike from starting on December 9th. And what's interesting is that the smaller unions, BRS and BMWE, have changed their strike dates to align with Smart TD. Uh, so if a deal isn't reached by then, the entire industry will launch a strike, which is really fucking cool. And we love to see it, especially because, um, unfortunately, uh, BLET uh, did not, you know, they voted to ratify the tentative agreement. Also, as a side note, I cannot read BLET without thinking bacon, lettuce, egg, and tomato sandwich. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I I think it's telling that both of these votes were really, really, really close. I mean, like Smart TDs was about as close as you can get. But I mean, BLETs was incredibly close as well. And I think it just goes to show you that like, despite the fact that there has been absolutely enormous pressure placed on these workers by the media, by the government, by likely some members of their own leadership, although I'm not making any accusations, just you know, rolling with what's probable, to vote in favor of the TA. And yet, still, in both of these, about half of them, tens of thousands of workers, said, you know what, I can't accept that we don't get to have any paid sick days, that if I want to go see the doctor... I have to notify them a month in advance and only go to the doctor on a Tuesday or Wednesday or a Thursday. Like, 
So I, I think it's it's really encouraging that despite this amount of pressure, we saw tens of thousands of workers vote down this tentative agreement. And so now, yeah, we are right back on track for a national rail strike uh, in just a couple of weeks. And, and so, like, we'll obviously be, be covering this very closely as it approaches because Smart TD voting it down makes this – that by we are now at the likeliest, you know, for a, for a rail strike that we've been at any point in mm-hmm. this discussion, uh, because at this point, I, after all of these months of negotiations and all of the potential times that the rail companies could have simply said, "Okay, we'll give you a couple of paid sick days in order to keep running our racket and and running the rails horribly and making enormous profits off of it," because they likely could have gotten people to vote for the the TA if that's all they'd done. That wouldn't have been enough, but that might have been enough to clear this vote. But because they've been so intransigent, they, they it's now come to this. And I find it very unlikely that they're act now, in these two weeks, going to, to, you know, basically come to Jesus and realize that, oh, actually, maybe we should give them a couple of, of, of sick days. I think much more likely they're going to attempt to use their nuclear option of forcing Congress to... Uh, basically declare any potential strike illegal and attempt to impose the terms of the presidential emergency board, uh, PEB 250, onto these workers uh, against their consent. So, like, it's going to be really important for all of us, like, in the working class, really, to follow this. And if the workers do end up striking on the 9th, like, we need, like, every major union needs to be out there, like, in support of the rail workers, because there's going to be, the, and you're already seeing it in some of the coverage of this. All the headlines, they're like, unions talk about striking, threaten the economy. That's what it says in every single one of these. It's They're always trying to put the potential monetary damage to these businesses on the workers, when it is the fault of these rail companies and has been for decades so, like, we got to be out there with all of our organizations in support of the rail workers. I'm, I'm really hoping we're going to be seeing some solidarity messages from the big unions, like, you know, the, the Federation, the AFL-CIO, but also the Teamsters, SEIU, because this it's really important that this not become a second PATCO. Like, uh, the, we are in the midst of a big labor upsurge, and the politicians would absolutely love to try and crush that in the same way that they've been trying to crush it by raising interest rates at the Fed and here trying to crush it by basically trying to f- make this strike illegal. So we, you know, we, we'll be following this, but uh, it, this is, we're coming real close to a point where we're going to need like the whole labor movement mobilized around the entire country in support of these folks. That's right. And speaking of gigantic industries, we've got wage theft, the largest industry in the world, where yeah, it much. is once again happening it's happening again uh at the, <laughs> at the gigafactory which is basically tesla's large uh construction factory for vehicles that they are in the middle of building or have partially built in austin texas and uh you know as as no one is going to be surprised about tesla with owner elon musk uh, has engaged in massive labor violations including wage theft and uh, I mean, this is only the like one, well, only the latest in a historic 
you know, precedents set by Tesla that they are going to totally, you know, attack workers, including using uh, racism and and uh, supervisors against black wor- workers and basically illegal union busting tactics. In a complaint, the workers said that some contractors, that subcontractors falsified records rather than give, giving them the legally required trainings on safety, health, and workers' rights. Uh, only our other workers simply had their wages stolen that were never paid, and others never received overtime pay for their work. Uh, workers were promised double pay for working on Thanksgiving, but never received it. I mean, that's, uh, you know, pretty classic with the promises of decent pay and then those being revoked at the last minute, basically, so that you can you know make sure workers are like oh i'm looking forward to this and then be like oh i'm sorry we decided we couldn't do it and they're already working and so now the workers are kind of in that position of you know the proletarian state where they are forced to continue to work for their own livelihoods but now with less and no recourse to actually get that sort of thing back yeah well and here we see uh you know tesla basically engaging in the same kind of activity that amazon has long done where they're going around and revo- quote unquote revolutionizing the industry by basically making the construction work and the assembly work and the manufacturing and the safety work and all of that 10 times more dangerous and uh you know much much harder to complete for the workers so you have one worker victor who told the guardian quote nobody deserves what happened in the gigafactory to happen to them or their family members or whomever i don't think it was humane and so they had to work at the factory roof with no lights on top of smoking turbines without any safety masks and a flooded factory floor with live wires running through the water uh he also told the guardian every day there was a safety issue so it's like this goes beyond like labor intensification this is just like i don't even know this is like a return to like peasant labor conditions where it's like yeah it might kill you just do it yeah yeah i mean this is it's it's completely in line with with Elon's various other ventures. I mean, mm-hmm. Tesla's racked up a ton of OSHA fines, which, as we've talked about on the show, since it's very easy to avoid getting OSHA fines uh, because OSHA doesn't really exist to enforce safety, uh, the number that Tesla has managed to accrue is really a testament to the fact that they don't give a shit about safety at all. Mm-hmm. They really seem to have an active contempt for their workforce. Um, but yeah, this... <sighs> It, it, the whole thing just continues to expose this idea that it's like, oh, there's they're really the tech industry is is innovating. It's like no, it's not. It's just doing the same sorts of horrific labor intensification and abuses of workers that companies have been trying to get away with doing since the since industrial there have been revolution. Companies? Well, yeah. and Elon himself <laughs> is is really uh, known for this. I mean, with all of the Twitter drama that's been going around and him firing most the like uh, at least half the staff. Uh, I mean, like, he just thinks, oh, no, they just aren't needed. Look at this innovation. I'm doing something brand new by firing everyone and intensifying the labor. Yeah, so uh, this this complaint was, like, just recently filed, uh, and unfortunately it's probably going to be a long path for these workers to get compensation for the, the conditions that they were put through and mm-hmm. all the wages that were stolen from them. Uh, largely because of the way construction is set up in this country. The whole thing is largely built on contractors employing subcontractors employing subcontractors. So uh, there's shell companies and companies that exist for like a couple of months while Mm -hmm. a project exists and then folds and moves somewhere else. So it can be a, a nightmare for workers trying to get compensated 
for this sort of thing. Uh, so I, I would not necessarily expect a fast resolution on this. But that being said, I mean, the workers have like the most clear cut open and shut case of basically breaking every workplace safety law in the book and seemingly every law against wage theft. Uh, so, I mean, we'll, we'll see what comes out of this, but just yet another case of people talking about how innovative they are when really all they mean is they're uh, really big fans of abusing their workforce. Yeah. And then in our next story, we're going to be following up, or kind of following well, up, we're going to be expanding <laughs> on the, yeah? Going from who you would most expect to who you would maybe less expect <laughs> to commit these kinds of crimes against their workers. <laughs> yeah, I, I we're going to be talking about the academic strike wave and a uh, in a, um, a school that I guess uh, based on its name expects to not exist that long uh, <laughs> because there's this school in New York City called the New School. Just that's it. It's called The New School. So it's a higher education facility. And this past week, 1,700 adjunct uh, or part-time faculty members went on strike on uh, Wednesday, November 16th, after their contract expired that Monday. And uh, the workers who made up the bulk of the uh, faculty of the school, 87% of it, and were also and were represented by ACT uh, UAW. ACT stands for the Adjuncts Coming Together. Uh, local 7902 have been fighting for a fair contract for like five months. And this, a lot of this comes from a, a recent piece that was put out by the Real News Network. And uh, th- those are the, the folks that are associated with the Working People podcast, in case, you know, we've referenced them a couple times, but I just want to make that clear. Yeah. So, like, the new school is, is a prestigious uh, private school in New York City. Uh, and the, one of the things that makes this one rather f- additionally frustrating is the new school was founded and, and really trades on its image as a very progressive institution as, as like this is an institution that like wants to provide basically an ivy league style education but to anyone uh except not really <laughs> yeah well i mean honestly it, it, this one was kind of rough because like i follow the new school on uh youtube because occasionally they have mm-hmm. lectures from like not you know uh, uh, really great speakers, but guys who are pretty good, like Noam Chomsky and and guys in, in that kind of lane. Yeah, sometimes. like uh, like Richard Wolf, I think. Sure, Richard Wolf is a great a example. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, the new school has joined the very long list of of places we've talked about on this show that uses a progressive image while still doing all of the same workplace abuses that every capitalist enterprise does. New school, mm. like the old school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so. These workers, these adjunct professors, and just to say, adjunct professors are like screwed over pretty much universally in yeah. in, in higher education. Uh, the more, granted, I like I, I didn't go to grad school or anything, but the more I've learned about it, the more I've been convinced grad school is a racket, uh, and that largely runs on the underpaid labor of adjunct professors and grad students. Um, yeah, and it's also like super unfair that like the troubles of a lot of uh, academic professionals have been reduced in popular media to like jokes about having or not having tenure when it's like no, there's actually yeah. this whole complicated web of like people whose labor is sapped up at various varying degrees. But you know, whatever, that's all. Yeah. We could do a whole episode on that. Yeah. So so these adjunct professors who, as Lena said, are the vast majority mm-hmm. of the teachers at the new school. Only 13 percent of their staff are full time, you know, tenured employees. 
they've been operating on the same contract they signed back in 2014 because they've been going so long without being able to have a breakthrough in negotiations. Mm. And so there's a lot of stuff that needed to be addressed in a new contract because it's been eight years since they got their last one, including obviously pay, healthcare benefits, job security, harassment protections. But the new school administration has balked at really meeting any of them. Uh, they've the pay rates also that, that that have been revealed from this, and, and the piece in the Real News Network is is really good. They did a, a great job of, of doing some some investigative journalism on this. So like. Adjunct faculty at the new school. First off, their pay. I, I, that was another thing I had to learn about this. Adjunct faculty are basically paid in piece rates uh, because they're paid specifically for the number of hours a course is taught. None of the hours they spend prepping the course, none of the time that they spend doing office hours, none of the time that they spend grading. It's is if this is a forty-hour course, you are paid a standard rate for that 40 hour course. It doesn't come with any of the any of your actual time expenses whatsoever. And for these workers at the new school, they are averaging only $4500 for teaching a 3 credit course. Uh, for comparison's sake, uh, the same the for the same work, faculty at NYU, which is yes, that's a really high priced school, but it's also in New York City, not the the pretty similar clientele to mm-hmm. the new school. Adjunct professors there make $10,500 for a three-credit course, over double what the new school pays. So, and, and, and this is important because the adjunct faculty tend to teach maybe, you know, three to four courses a year, especially when they're starting out. So, like, that's only, if you use the new school's current rates, thirteen dollars to $18,000 a year, which... You can't survive on that anywhere in the country, much less in fucking New York City. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the, and the the organization that the new school uh the union, the workers were asking for fourteen thousand per course, but mm-hmm. the school itself countered with a two percent raise. <laughs> yeah. Um and then only increasing their offer to four and a half percent and which is still a uh a pay cut. And uh, the union, and I mean, along with that ra- that that increase in the raise was a cut for the union pensions, or the, at least the, the school's contribution to the school's pensions right. by half. And then, you know, the school later issued an offer of 7% raises, and the, us- the union pointed out that since their last raise in 2014, inflation has gone up 18%. Yeah. So clearly, an an inadequate uh, raise that is being offered by the school here. Well, anything like what would be an adequate raise? What would be like the floor of an acceptable raise? Like eighty percent, right? If you're living right. in New York City, <laughs> yeah. And and one of the other things, though, learning about this situation too, is just getting into you know how these sorts of schools are often run as a racket, which is that. Adjunct professors who come to teach at the new school, again, they, mm-hmm. they, per the reporting, they typically start out with a three to four courses a year course workload. And after their ninth or their 11th in that time frame, their semester. So if you, if you teach three semesters a year, that's three years. But if you're just teaching the two, that might be four or five years into teaching at the school. At that point, generally the workers are supposed to get annualized which basically means that they get they get a contract for a base level of work that they can count on every year but the new school 
once the adjuncts they bring in get to that point, they just fire them so that they don't have to annualize them, so they don't have to guarantee them a steady rate. They just say, you know, you know what? We're churning out a lot of graduated uh, students with real expensive degrees who need jobs, so there's a huge amount of competition for this work, so we don't really have to compete for teachers. So right before we would have to actually pay you decently, we can just fire you and try and hire some other grad students. It'll be great. We'll make so much money. <laughs> like, it's... It's like really, really sleazy. Uh, so, uh, I mean, this has basically allowed the school to extract maximum profits from low-paid part-time faculty and never hiring anyone full-time. And that's leading to this situation where, again, 87% of their teachers are adjuncts. And, and it's allowed the school to make enormous profits. This also comes at the same time that this, that they have basically this incredibly draconian system for determining if an adjunct is eligible for the school's health care plan. Like if you, if you don't have the exact number of credits, you might not get it. And also most of the time adjuncts are not eligible for their dependents to be on their health care plan, mm, useless. which makes it basically useless for a lot of people who have families. So ultimately... What a lot of this comes down to, because of course, whenever you, we have like a strike at uh, a school, there's always the pushback of like, look, no, we want to offer the best uh, things possible, but you know, it's just, it's so expensive to run a school and we're doing our best. Uh, and this is one of the things I thought was the, some of the best investigation by, by the, the report. The, the Real News Network discovered that 54%, more than half of the school's half a billion dollar budget, $500 million a year, 54% of that, $270 million, is spent on administrative salaries. Damn, they have 274 administrators each making a million dollars a year? That's outrageous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the thing. You're, you're hiring like thousands of administrative staff and paying them high salaries Meanwhile, you have these adjuncts that are like having to work second jobs, maybe a third job, like basically depending on a higher paid spouse or just like living in abject poverty or both or a mix of all of those mm -hmm. things. And these are the people on the front lines of the labor itself doing the education. I mean, the people who actually make, I mean, like, sure, there is a certain amount of administration that can be useful when it comes to, you know, coordinating uh, students and, and classes and stuff like that. But the, you know, uneven way in which this is distributed clearly shows a bias against the people who are actually doing the education itself. I mean, since 2014, the average income for the school increased by nearly 20%, but adjunct pay itself has fallen by 2.1% over the same period, uh, which really, I think, highlights this, this, uh, this unequal distribution of which wages are used for the workers in this uh, educational program. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it's really a case study in the kind of hypocrisy that we talk about a lot on this show with, you know, organizations like No Evil Foods, where you have a supposedly mm -hmm. progressive institution expounding publicly progressive values that claims from its founding to oppose traditional administrative hierarchies and yet screws over their workers and the students that they serve in order to maximize extraction of profits just for that little tiny core of administrators. And so you have these adjunct faculty who, as Lena said, 
you know, no disrespect to the other kinds of work that go into a university, they teach the classes that are theoretically the reason the school exists and yet are underpaid and overexploited systematically in the U.S. And it hits particularly hard for folks trying to live in New York City, one of the most outrageously expensive cities on the planet. Yeah. So... Uh, these these folks are are still on strike. So if you're in New York City, uh, you know, of course, we we always recommend that folks go out to their picket line, show your support, let the let the folks know that that you support them out there. Uh, but on to our our next story this week. This was a this was a, a big big one that I didn't see get a lot of coverage because like uh, you know labor notes talked about this, but. I didn't see a lot of other folks discuss this, but I think it's a pretty big story. Which this is coming out of a, an investigation by the Intercept that has determined that the UAW leadership under the admin caucus under Ray Curry uh, basically hid the value of the assets the union has from the rest of the membership and not by a small amount. (laughs) And this is, you know, of course, vitally important because we're in the middle of the first ever chance for the membership of the UAW to have a direct vote mm-hmm. on who their leadership is going to be. And this is also, and that only happened because of a consent, you know, well, it only happened because of decades of organizing by rank and file workers in the UAW. But the legal mechanism that got it to happen was a consent decree after the DOJ was investigating rampant corruption at the top of the UAW. And, you know, wild, it looks like the stuff that the UAWDs. Uh, rank and file reform slate the uaw members united has been saying about concerns about there still being some of those corrupt influences in the leadership seem to be being borne out um no surprise yeah so this report from the intercept from last week came out detailed how basically the way this worked is when the executive board of the union presented the status of the assets of the union at the convention that happened earlier this year. They presented the purchase price of the various assets that the union owns as their current value. But considering the union owns a lot of investments, Mm -hmm. which have appreciated over time by presenting things that way, they are actually hiding an enormous amount of value that these assets have. In fact, $425 $425 million worth of value. Which is like a third of the overall value of their assets, right? right? Yeah. yeah. So, no yeah, small because, amount. Because at, the, uh, at this summer's convention, the UAW leadership presented that the union controlled $960 million worth of assets. What they hid was the fact that after that $960 million of assets collectively over time had been purchased the current market value of those is $1.4 billion. And so I, this, I know this is the sort of thing that when you first hear it, you're like, okay, well, I mean, that's bad, but like, that's like a weird accounting thing. Like, why is this a story? Mm-hmm. Uh, the issue, there's a, there's a few key issues there. One of them is that there's actually a provision in the UAW uh, constitution that says if their strike fund hits $850 million, then workers' dues get lowered. Uh, now, again, we can we could have a separate debate on whether that's a good provision to have or whether they should always be focused on building a bigger, you know, strike fund. But that's a that's a separate discussion. That is a provision in their constitution. And by concealing the real market value 
of the union's assets. Like, for instance, at this at the convention, the admin caucus reported the value of the strike fund is $815 million. Now, we don't know precisely how much of the $426 million undercount is in the strike fund and how much is in other assets. But it's almost certain that the amount that is in the strike fund would have pushed it over that 850 million threshold. Well, especially when you take the the 1.4 billion figure, it's like you would have to have an extraordinary amount not in the strike fund right. to not clear that threshold. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And then I mean, I you know, you we we like you said we can have the debate on whether or not it should be used to lower uh, you know, the workers dues. I think that maybe if anything there should be a mandate for more strikes. Yeah. Yeah, well, lower the well, lower no, the conditions to use the money. Yeah, exactly. Because because that's the real thing. It's like it, it, getting aside the like that constitutional provision, the real core here is that by undervaluing by lowballing mm-hmm. to the workers the value of the assets of the union and specifically the strike fund that makes it far easier for a conservative leadership a class collaborationist leadership to convince workers like look we got to be careful about strikes we only we don't we don't have as much money as we'd like to have and so you know 815 million is still a lot of money but if the actual value of those funds is over a billion dollars the workers should know that but instead, they get this amount of money, and it's easier for them to say, maybe we should think twice about striking because we don't actually have this much money. So it's it, and and to be clear, this is a this is among major unions, the choice to represent the their value of the assets this way is appears to be unique because the Intercept reviewed filings from the Teamsters, the IBEW, the National Education Association. So you know some of the biggest unions in the country, none of them present assets this way. Every one of them presents the assets to, in their full market value to their members, which makes sense <laughs> because presenting them, it's like. This, I, we bought this, you know, like building for like a hundred thousand dollars in 1920 to prevent to present the value as a hundred thousand dollars today doesn't make any sense. It's not honest. Yeah, especially when like uh, you know, you could buy a car for like a crisp ten dollar bill back in the 1920s <laughs> right. or whatever, you know. <laughs> right. So we do have a quote uh, from Sean Fain, who's the UAW Members United candidate to be the, the next president of the UAW to replace Ray Curry. And he told The Intercept, quote, this is just another example of an out-of-touch international executive board that places its own agenda above that of the membership. While the Curry administration claims to be transparent, I find it shameful that the membership has been misled as to the actual value of the strike fund and that our leadership has severely underreported that value. Yeah, and that uh, misdirection, that misleading by the administration doesn't really end there because another thing that the audit found out was that approximately $209 million of the strikes fund value is tied up in what is classified as, quote, alternative investments, which include venture capital, private equity funds tied up in crypto, private prison companies and hosts of other risky and objectionable investments. So not only is the money being misrepresented, a lot of it is in investments that I'm sure the membership would not be excited about. Your average, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, UAW worker does not want his strike fund invested in cryptocurrency. (laughs) Yeah. Let's be real. And and, and crucially, even if you put the morality of the investments aside, Mm -hmm. and I don't think people should, but even if you did that. Right. These sorts of investments are vastly harder to make liquid. Yeah. So if there is, like next year, 
there's a chance for a strike by the UAW at the big three. That's hundreds of, that's thousands. I don't know if it's hundreds of thousands, but it's at least tens of thousands of workers, uh, probably over a hundred thousand that would be hitting the picket line. That will take the full value of the strike fund. And if 200 million of it is tied up in crypto, that's, you know, falling through the floor, then how are the workers supposed to be able to take advantage of the money? Yeah. Yeah. So if you have to have your administration call a private equity company that has to call their crypto guy that has to try and pull, yeah. you know, $200 million worth of shitcoin out of Binance on a Tuesday afternoon, it's like none of that is going to work. Every step in that chain is going to fail. Like, yeah, I, I love when like the essential parts of an organization def- designed to defend me are are invested in in very uh, dubious and and honestly incredibly volatile uh, sources mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. crypto or or venture capital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or just straight up reprehensible industries like private prisons. Yeah, well, yeah. the UAW Members United slate ha- issued a, the following statement on the report saying, uh, we believe the primary purpose of the union strike fund should be for the membership to take on the companies. Uh, this m- misconception likely affected crucial uh, decisions that delegates took at the UAW co- uh, Constitutional Convention in July, such as reversing the vote to increase strike pay to $500. The size of the strike fund also affects the membership's decision on whether or not to strike and for how long. At a minimum, the membership deserves the following from the UAW International Executive Board. 1. Make the annual auditor reports containing financial data on the value of UAW investments easily available for memberships. For membership, uh, These reports are commissioned by the Board of International Trustees and presented by the uh, IBE, but are difficult for the UAW members to access. Trans- uh, two, transparency regarding the fair market value of the strike and defense fund. The fair market value of the UAW's overall assets are reported to the auditor's report and are not uh, that of the strike and defense fund specifically, knowing that the fair market value is important for assessing our strike readiness. Three, transparency in regard to the nature of the investments in the strike and defense fund, and the additional or the yeah, and the additional hundreds of millions that have been committed to alternative investments. Uh, we need to know how much money is readily available when we go on strike. And four, form a team to evaluate whether the current investment strategy serves a true purpose, uh, serves the true purpose of the strike fund. And this goes back, this list right here goes back to the uh, QP thing where you outline all of your demands clearly and you do not give in until you get them all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, unfortunately, with the timing of this report, I, I this is one of those things where I really wish this report had come out a month or two ago mm-hmm. because we are in the process right now where workers are voting on who they want to represent them on the International Executive Board. And I think it's probably not not unfair to say that a decent chunk of folks who have already mailed in their ballots might have been influenced by knowing about this, by knowing that the current administration has tied up $200 million of their money in shit like crypto and investing in private prisons, and also that they lied to them about how much money the union actually has. But unfortunately, you know, we just, uh, the, this past Friday, the November 18th, was the deadline for UAW members, well, the, the recommended deadline for, for UAW members to mail in their ballots for the leadership election. So, um, you know, a lot of the folks who are going to mail in their ballots uh, rather than voting in person, 
I'm not sure exactly how you know UAW locals are handing that election, but the folks who have been choosing to vote by mail, most of them have already voted. So, I mean, we'll see uh, when when that those results eventually come in. Uh, but unfortunately, it it seems like this has come out kind of late in the game. But it's just, regardless of how this ends up affecting the election, this is a very disappointing news story. Like, like, look, we, we are, we're not really, we're not hiding the fact that we, we have a, you know, we're backing the reform slate here, but like, I don't like reporting on, you know, union leaderships doing this shit, even if it's a, a union leadership that we oppose, like this sucks. It makes it really easy for people to try and discredit unions as a whole. And that's precisely why, you know, we need reform movements like the UAWD to help put unions back on a class struggle basis and not in this sort of thing where you have people who are like insulated from member control and are just playing around with this money as if it's their own. Yeah. Well, and so in our next story, we've talked so many times about the Fight for 15 movement and different ways that it can, you know, that it's really important, but has certain inadequacies, but also about unions' unwillingness to organize in the U.S. South. Mm -hmm. Well, there is a new union that has been announced and formed called the Union of Southern Service Workers, which was uh, announced at the Southern Workers Summit. And, you know, had a bunch of people sign on. This is also associated with SEIU, like the Fight for 15 movement, but seems to be a more actual way for people in the service industry in in historically exploited uh, sections of not only the U.S., but also the labor the labor sector in general uh, have uh, to, to have a actual material way of coordinating and fighting back within a union. Yeah. So the fight for 15 movement, I mean, folks will be aware of it. They've been, you know, fighting valiantly to get the, the minimum wage raised for largely for, for service workers, but for everybody, uh, for the past really like decade uh, or more at, at this point. Uh, but you know, uh, there has been the need, and I think workers clearly identified this, for a qualitative step forward, an advancement of that movement to be even more militant and and, fi- and fighting for more than just that legislative change, but using worker power directly to actually force that sort of change, and which is, you know, the sort of thing that we always love to see. And so this past weekend, we, we had this this come together with this this new union being formed with explicitly that goal in mind. And and just for some background on like why this is so important and the importance of doing this in the South, because this is this effort's currently focused on Georgia, Alabama, and the Carolinas, but will grow to cover the entire southern region and this is so important because we talked about this a bit uh, on our various labor history episodes that we've done on on our various overtime series but the the south has long been depended on by the u.s ruling class to be a solid reactionary block politically but also economically it's been used to break unions within the united states for decades uh, be, because you basically have the states of the former Confederacy that have been ba- controlled extremely, even more undemocratically than the rest of the country uh, for the last 150 years by the essentially the same the descendants of the same interests that used to run the Confederacy. <laughs> Um, and Northern capitalists have depended on that because it's been a way to fight back against unions all over the country. So like the South has far, far lower unionization rates, even than the pathetic 
ridiculously low rates we have across the whole country. Like South Carolina has the lowest rate in the country at I believe 1.7% of their workers are unionized. And this has resulted in predictably suppressed wages. There are so many of the states in the South that only have the federal minimum wage of 725 and 80% of workers in South Carolina make less than $15 an hour. Despite the fact that, again, we know that the living wage is, you know, it's lower in the South than it is in, say, in New York City, but it's not nothing. A living wage in South Carolina is $17.50. So even if workers did make $15 an hour, they still wouldn't be making enough. And and so Southern politicians have, have specifically pro- like profited immensely from this in the form of kickbacks, no work consultancy jobs, jobs as lobbyists, from, you know, of course, campaign donations, which can be laundered through consultancy agencies into your own pocket, uh, and, and numerous other forms of payment by corporations that benefit from maximizing exploitation. Because back in, say, the 30s through the 60s, when you had the the surge of the union movement in the U.S. uh, from the Depression through the end of World War II uh, and then going up into the 60s when it started to decline, uh, you had so many companies in the northern parts of the U.S., especially in the Northeast and the industrialized Midwest, that chose to move their production down to the South and into the Sun Belt because based on an alliance with politicians there ensuring the passage of right-to-work laws, as well as the use of white supremacy and various, you know, parastate groups like the KKK mm-hmm. to crush any attempt to make a interracial working-class alliance in, in the form of unions or, you know, socialist movements and, all, and black liberation movements, all sorts of other groups, to try and fight for the working class as a whole in the South. And these corporations have benefited massively from that. And so that's why you've seen so much of the manufacturing that still happens happens in this country shifted to the South as a way to try and evade unionization. And so with all of that in mind, that's what makes this sort of thing so important. Like the formation of this union that's explicitly aimed at breaking the decades of super exploitation faced by the largely black proletariat of the South and bringing workers together in, a, in again, that, that cross-racial working-class alliance mm-hmm. to try and raise conditions for all workers in the South is something that's been sorely needed, I mean, for, like, uh, I, since 1876. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, really, it really testifies to the fact that, like, you know, that famous Parenti line about how uh, a lot of countries aren't underdeveloped, they're overexploited, can mm-hmm. also be applied to the domestic South here in the United mm-hmm. States, especially when you're talking about areas with largely non-white populations. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. and I mean, like, I, I think that this uh, quote from Brandon Beecham, a uh, Panera worker at Atlanta who spoke to Truthout kind of gives uh, a little bit of light to this, who said, uh, with with eyes wide open to the past and the immense hope for the for a better future, we are building a union to fight for living wages, fair working conditions, and a voice on the job. We're coming together and digging in for the long haul as a union because collective action is the best solution to improve our lives and support our families. That rocks Hell, so yeah. much. And, uh, you know, they didn't... Uh, they didn't waste any time immediately engaging in democracy because the workers there at the summit voted on a series of universal demands that they will fight for across all workplaces, which include fair and equal treatment of all workers, ending discriminatory pay and harassment based on race, gender, age, sexual orientation, or immigration status, an end to arbitrary discipline and a fair grievance process, safe workplaces for all and real health care benefits and sick leave for all workers, fair and consistent scheduling, including full-time 
time for all who want it, safe staffing levels, and a regular schedule made in advance, fair pay, specifically a living wage so that workers are not forced to have multiple jobs just to get by, as well as demanding an end to the rampant wage theft in the service sector, and acknowledgement of the right to organize and participate in decision-making and no retaliation for organizing. So it's interesting because a lot of these are things that we see as just being like, yeah, those are just important baseline demands that should be made in every workplace. But some of them, uh, like especially focusing on the wage theft in the service sector, I think are really important because highlighting those kinds of like individual and widespread but often overlooked crimes that are perpetrated by corporations and managers, et cetera, is a big part of what's really going to not just get workers interested, but also like get the public starting to have like a, a positive attitude towards your organization. Yeah, and additionally, we have another quote here from the head of the SEIU, Mary Kay Henry, who said in a statement, Black, brown, and immigrant service workers across the South are leading the fight for a fundamental transformation in our economy and democracy aimed at rewriting outdated laws that have always held back working people and stopped them from gaining their own voice through unions. Together, in the Union of Southern Service Workers— Workers across states and workplaces in the South will become an unstoppable force that no union-busting corporation or racist politician dare ignore. Hell yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really exciting development. Like, this is, I mean, I've said, I know I'm just repeating myself, but this is something that the South has has really needed. And the the labor movement in this country has needed for a long time. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's the classic example of, like, you know, the... The, the Communist Party tried really hard to to organize the South and did a lot of great work uh, that was then uh, destroyed in the, the the McCarthyite Red Scare. You talking about the the, the, the book Hammer and Ho? Yeah, Hammer and Ho by Robin D. G. Kelly, fantastic. Folks should definitely look at that. It's a, it's a great look at what worked and what didn't work about trying to organize in the South and the forces that folks were up against and unfortunately are still up against trying mm-hmm. to do this sort of thing. So, I mean the. This is incredibly inspiring. This is going to be a real long-term project. I'm sure there will be, you know, fits and starts to its development. It's always tough to get a a union off the ground starting from scratch. But, I mean, they pulled together hundreds of workers for this Southern Worker Summit in in South Carolina. All these folks signing union cards ready to fight for their coworkers uh, all across the South. So this is, I think, going to be a movement to watch and and, and could be really transformative. Yeah. Absolutely. And then in our weekly covering of another transformative union movement, we're going to be Mm -hmm. talking about Starbucks, which this week we actually do have a pretty significant update on what has been happening there. Uh, So over the past week, I mean, I guess we'll first start on Tuesday, November 15th, where the NLRB issued a broad complaint against Starbucks. Uh, asking a court in Michigan to issue a nationwide cease and desist order uh, against the company to bar them from firing workers for organizing. Uh, The board has issued similar targeted complaints to individual cities, but this is the first one where they talk about, where they bring up like a nationwide complaint. Mm -hmm. And the complaint also aims to force Starbucks to reinstate Hannah Whitbeck, uh, a union leader in Michigan who was fired in May for her organizing. Uh, in the request for the injunction, the NLRB said, given the number and pattern of Starbucks's unfair labor practices here and elsewhere, particularly discharges, a nationwide cease and desist order is necessary to halt Starbucks's systematic campaign of retaliation. Which is like, this is one of those situations where it's like, great, yeah, I'm glad you filed the cease and desist order. I'm glad this is, you know, finally being enforced. But 
it was already illegal to fire mm-hmm. them for organizing. There should not be a, 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 an activity by the court where it's like, hey, follow the law. No, you need to punish them. It was broken. There's, there's no second. If, if I broke the law in this manner, I wouldn't get a second chance, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. Like it, if, if I run into a Starbucks and, and like grab a whole display rack of food and run out the door mm-hmm. with it, I'm not going to get a letter from the local police that's like, hey, don't steal anymore. Yeah, like, it's, you're not going to get a cease and desist. It's just outrageous. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it is, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't want to say the NLRB is bad for filing this. It's, 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 it's good. It's just like yet another like thing that points to, it. it's like, we can't rely on the NLRB just and because even the, even the really good people on the NLRB who mm-hmm. genuinely want to do as much as they possibly can for workers and genuinely do want to stop Starbucks's campaign, the tools that they have to work with are so toothless that this is really what they've been left with right because so, this is in the face of firing 150 over 150 mm-hmm. employees yeah. for union organizing across the country well and when i think yeah. of like the the one or two like really great really invested good people at the nlrb i picture people sitting in a room surrounded by possibly millions of pieces of paper just going like, oh, yeah. the rules are fucked and i have no tools to help you like <laughs> yeah yeah so uh, but Despite that, you know, workers continued to use uh, tools that actually do tend to work, uh, striking. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, workers at the New York City Roastery, who we've been covering their strike, they've been on strike now, actually, for a month. Uh, I can't believe it's already been a month. I know, uh, right? <laughs> I'm like, I feel like this strike started last week, and now it's been a month. Uh, anyways, uh, but so these folks went on strike because of unsanitary conditions at the roastery because the workers went to their managers and say, uh, a, we've told you about there being mold in the ice machine multiple times. You've done nothing. And also B now there's bed bugs and we can't serve food <laughs> if there's a bed bug infestation mm-hmm. and we can't give people moldy ice. And yet all the Starbucks management did was gaslight these workers the whole time saying you're lying. That's not real. Well, now there's an official report from New York City food safety inspectors who, surprise, surprise, found that the workers were telling exactly the truth about what was going on in the roastery. No they, way! <laughs> they inspected the store and found mold-like material inside the roastery and gave the store a failing safety grade, per a report from the city NYC. Uh, These workers have gone on strike uh, on the 25th and remain on strike because the company continues to lie and deny that the store has any safety and sanitation problems at all. So the union put out a statement in response to the city's report saying, quote, the statement from the Department of Agriculture concerning its inspection affirms what the workers already knew. Mold is a serious issue at the New York City Roastery. Meanwhile, workers have been repeatedly told by management that there is nothing to worry about and have been denied access to inspection reports regarding the mold, as well as reports relating to the inspection of the premises for bed bugs. The failed Department of Agriculture and Markets inspection vindicates the workers' claims, end quote. And, and yet, again, despite this report coming out last week, 
Still nothing from Starbucks agreeing to fix this problem. So now they're not only saying the workers are lying, they're saying the New York City health inspectors are lying. Yeah, well, and like, you know, as if being intransigent in a situation like this wasn't bad enough, they're also just being outright hostile towards their workers. Mm -hmm. Because the very same day, workers in Portland, Maine, who had just recently unionized the Middle and Exchange Streets store, were told that their store would be closing. They Mm -hmm. had been given uh, one month to find new jobs. And this is just the latest in a long series of obvious and blatantly illegal store closures by the company in their union locations. And it's like, God, do they only have two plays in their playbook where it's like, tell the workers no and say they're lying or close the store? Because it's like... Yeah. That's what yeah. they're capable of. Well, and the workers are not actually taking any of this lying down. I mean, this you know injunction from the NLRB or the fact that Starbucks is refusing to actually do anything about the uh, situation at the roastery in New York. Uh, the workers on November 17th on Red Cup Day, which is a prom- holiday promotion where they basically you know s- sell a little cup to um, customers – and it gives them a discount throughout the whole season on on getting drinks. Well, in order to kind of notice, or I mean, the the workers know that this is a, a day of intensification for, mm-hmm. and I mean, honestly, it goes over like a whole week or more. Um, and people keep asking for it for months and all the way through the fucking <laughs> holidays. Anyway, uh, 112 union stores across the country went on strike against the company's illegal union busting tactics. You love to see it. So yeah, cool. it was really, really impressive to see this coordinated action by the workers. Yeah, the 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 Red Cup Rebellion, as the workers deemed it, which by the way, excellent branding. Mm-hmm. Um, I like this was, I think, probably this the single most impressive, I think, like action of of the Starbucks Workers United campaign so far. Because again, this is over two thousand workers across twenty five states, as you said, Lena, one hundred and twelve union stores all striking on the same day the day that is usually you know starbucks's like biggest single profitable day of the year i mean first off a plus perfect choice for mm-hmm. a day for maximum leverage uh they there was i will say if you were on twitter on thursday and you weren't just following all the posts about Elon Musk destroying Twitter by being an idiot. Uh, <laughs> there was just so many pictures and videos of and links to TikTok and Instagram and all this stuff from the workers all across the country with all of their different coordinated strike actions and all the folks who showed up and actually honored the picket lines. It also started a bunch of discourse about picket lines. It's very annoying and we're not going to get into here. But yeah, wait, no, I want to do one. I want to do one because it was so funny. I mean, this might even be getting into the meme review earlier but i just want to quote this one tweet that was uh yesterday in a, in a guy in a blue lives matter hat crossed the picket line oh, yeah. and when i told him the store is closed he responded i don't care i'm law enforcement he pulled on the locked door and slipped on the ice i can't prove it but i think he pooped his pants a little bit when he <laughs> fell <laughs> oh man yeah i mean there it was there were so many scenes all the different like localized starbucks workers united union accounts all just putting the company on blast at the same time. It, it was really great like to see them just shutting down stores all over the country and really showing the, the potential 
mm-hmm. that this nationwide movement has. Uh, like, again, you, you have this whole thing where Starbucks continues to deny that they're even doing union busting. And it's just like, well, when 112 stores go on strike across the entire country, you can't really hide or deflect that. Like, it's it, it's just obvious to everyone. And uh, so, yeah, uh, yeah. Because, I mean, like, what are they going to do? Pull in outside agitators kind of things? Like, <laughs> right. a fucking, there was like 2,000 workers across 25 states that participated in this Red Cup rebellion. Yeah. So, like, they, the, the company did manage to operate some stores using only managers, but uh, the majority of these striking stores were forced to close down, which is huge. And I do think is also one of the things that I think is somewhat impressive about this is that they I, – I don't know – you know, it's, it's impossible for us to know when, like, Starbucks management found out about this, but – there was no chatter about it, like online, at mm-hmm. least in the, the labor sources that I follow about before it happened. It's like the night before, it's just finally there's like starts to be like some news about it. I was like, oh, a big strike. And then bam, the morning of, it's like everybody's on strike, which I think is considering, again, how many thousands of workers are now in the union. Excellent communications discipline by by these workers. Yeah, it's really impressive to be able to do that with that big of a group and uh, to have everybody be like, to to know who to not tell about it mm-hmm. to keep it relatively right. under wraps yeah that's really big. impressive yeah. yeah 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 so Tyler Keeling uh, a Starbucks worker in Ca- in California said in a statement quote We've chosen to strike today on Red Cup Day intentionally. We want everyone, including Starbucks, to know that we know our rights and are acting within the law, and we want the contract that we are legally entitled to. We're ready to bargain whenever they are. (laughs) Tell them. Tell them. That's so dismissive of of the Starbucks Corporation, too. I fucking love it. That's huge energy right there. Yeah. (laughs) So good. Yeah, and we do still have a couple more victories for union elections Come, uh, where in Arkansas we have a our first Starbucks workers union uh, at the Weddington and North North Salem store in Fayetteville, who voted eleven to nine in favor of joining Starbucks Workers United. And then on Monday this morning, November twenty first, again you're probably listening to this on the twenty second. Uh, workers at the at the Starbucks in in Arlington Courthouse, Virginia. That's a very interesting city name yeah it's weird to name your town courthouse the name of the courthouse <laughs> yeah uh, it i mean the there's, 20- a, there's a virginia has a lot of weird town names there's one called front royal and i always thought that was just one of the weirdest names for a town <laughs> in the world <laughs> yeah it became the 21st store in the delaware maryland virginia area which is basically the area that surrounds uh washington dc to vote to be part of the union and now there are approximately 7,000 unionized starbucks workers which is about 10 percent of the company's workforce uh, i think that's ten? pretty fucking mm-hmm. impressive that's huge i didn't know we were up to those kind of fractions already yeah, yeah. It, it really it important that organizing they, yeah that they've got a lot of the biggest stores because mm-hmm. like it's not 10 percent of stores but it is about 10 percent of employees ah. so which i mean that's more important anyway yeah so (laughs) yeah yeah, i think that's a a very impressive mark to have gotten to and again only a year seven thousand organized workers from zero in a year like incredible yeah Yeah. you you which means you love to see it that you know i mean as you know we know how compounding interest works that means that it's only going to take five years to get a hundred percent of the starbucks (laughs) workers that's right in the year after that they'll have 200 percent of the Starbucks. that's right (laughs) i I love math 
speaking, speaking of jokes, let's move to the meme review, which I know I already started a little bit earlier with the quote on the uh, falling uh, cop who pooped his pants. <laughs> but uh, well, we're going to be doing our normal meme review here. So our first one is a uh, is a tweet which has is I think a lot of people have seen and is very funny, and uh, I guess I'll just read it because this is by uh, Norris but no Chuck. Uh, it's uh, getting my neck, my back. We need a fair contract on the real strike chant list. Or yeah, on the real strike chant, chant list is moving to the top of my reasons. I'm going to hell. And I just nah. think that 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 is very <laughs> funny. I I can just imagine. But the thing is, is that the um the cadence of the way that you have to read that is not the cadence of the song. It's the cadence of just a, a union chant. It's a uh, anyway. Yeah, I, I don't want to actually now. I, now I feel embarrassed to actually read it in that way. No, it. I think it, it works <laughs> syllable syllables wise anyway. I, yeah. I I saw I saw a video of uh one of the picket lines. I think this was one of the UC picket lines of them. Everybody's waving the the UAW signs, yelling "My neck, my back. We need a fair contract." Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. That was great. Oh, this isn't even so in the funny. meme review. But did you all see the the? tweet that was like the picket line is now desi and it's just a bunch of people dancing to tunuk tunuk tune oh, yeah. <laughs> it was fucking so tight. good so <laughs> yeah good. and everybody and knows just, to dance too it was very cool yeah uh, yeah i definitely was 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 very happy to see everybody doing the dollar mendy dance during <laughs> it was very fucking funny, loved but, it yeah um so this next one is is kind of the inverse, whereas the, the first one is a pure text meme. This is a no text meme. <laughs> uh, and, and this is really just, it, it's, it's a great modification of a little drawing of like a Mario cartoon. But you've got Mario being chased by a boo, but Mario has had his face replaced with the screaming capitalist pig and the boo has a little Yushanka on as the specter <laughs> of communism chasing the uh, terrified boss. Yeah. I just think this castle. is a really good like reaction photo whenever, you know, like especially in places mm. where you're not just doing like an emoji react, like on discord, you can just go ahead and drop that whenever you see, uh, you know, capitalists shitting their pants. I yeah. That yeah. That, yeah. Well, speaking um, of shitting their pants, uh, the next meme is uh, should have the the demons from Doom shitting theirs because uh, it just shows Doom guy in a forklift chasing a demon with some radioactive material on the forks, and it says "Demons beware! Doom guy is now forklift certified." <laughs> I gotta say, I mean, badass. <laughs> I just love forklift memes. <laughs> Me too. They're so good. It's such a great niche. <laughs> for for my job too that I just got like, you know, a year ago, I I walk through a lot of facilities where there are forklifts or in Michigan they're usually called hilos, but it's the same shit. Uh mm. going all over the place and I got to say it's pretty impressive watching some of these people whip around on a forklift. You would think they've been doing it all their lives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, and I mean, I guess in the thought of doing it your whole life, I mean, I guess we haven't yeah. been doing this our whole lives. I have put a challenge in here for us, a true a true challenge to our ability to do image description. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, I'm just going to read the caption of this, and it's, uh, it's it says, uh, why are you always vague about your spiritual beliefs? And then uh, it says, my spiritual beliefs, and... 
Y'all got to help me with this image description. <laughs> uh, yeah, it has aliens planting an anarcho-syndicalist flag in front of the pyramids at Giza, accompanied by seemingly a spaceship and some s- dinosaurs who are either very small or... <laughs> and a dragon. And a dragon and an alligator or possibly a crocodile. It's pretty blurry. Uh, in front of the IWW logo with what looks like... Is this a Zapatista supposed to be... I think so. (laughs) (laughs) But wearing like... Unclear. Yeah, like Zapatista-style person wearing seemingly elaborate and colorful outfit holding a gun while the syndicalist cat... What's that cat's name? The Sabo Cat. The Sabo Cat uh, blasts the capitalist pig in the face with a laser beam coming out of its mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I just saw this the other day and I'm like, I know there's always a tendency to analyze this from a tendency perspective, Mm -hmm. which I'm like, that's the wrong way to look at this meme. This meme is just cool. Don't think about it any more than that. (laughs) Yeah, that's That's for real. That's like when people ask me, they're like, John, you know, you're an adult. Why do you still listen to power metal? And I'm like, well, because no matter what you believe, dragons and big axes and stuff will always be cool. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Yeah, uh, thinking of things that are not cool, uh, I have one last thing in here, which is going to be kind of to highlight the fact that uh, this this coming week is what uh, us in the United States have a national holiday for, a thing mm-hmm. called Thanksgiving. And uh, it's the, the caption on this is, my face when people tell me Thanksgiving is about family and not genocide. And it's, I don't know... It, Oh, is that Star Wars? I think I that's know. a very it, young Harrison Ford. I'm not sure, yeah, though. <laughs> it's it's Harrison Ford giving uh, Mark Hamill a like ra- very strong raised eyebrow. Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty sure this is from... Uh, I think this is from Return of the Jedi? Is this when they're in the desert with the, yeah. with the worm in the ground? Yeah. Oh, Tremors. I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. right. Yeah, but I know, because More importantly... Fuck Thanksgiving. Yeah. That's also, right. when I first read this, I read it as my face when I'm at Thanksgiving and my family asks me not to talk about genocide because I just like speed read it. And that's also oh. a common format is like, you know, getting out of pocket in front of your family about totally justified things at Thanksgiving. Works either way. <laughs> you know, if, yeah. you, if you really want to keep it like low key and you don't want to have to argue with people, what you can do is you can just find a good uh, zine or text to print it out and just leave it on the coffee table and be like, hey, I left this here for everyone. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and, like, you know, or, or, or like make sure to bring a copy for everyone, put it in their bags as a go home goodie bag kind of thing. Carefully redrawing <laughs> frames from a Michael Parenti video and then cutting and gluing it into the newspaper where Doonesbury would usually go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Well, uh, and with that, uh, fuck Thanksgiving. And yeah. mm-hmm. uh, we want to thank y'all for listening. And uh, if you'd like to support our show, you can go do that at patreon.com slash workstoppage where if you give us five dollars a month you get access to all of our overtime episodes including our new one is which is our new series which is about the rebel rank and file uh upsurge in the 1970s you know we talked about the decline of american unionism in another series and this is kind of about people who were fighting back at the time and uh it is a real
really cool series that we will be completing next week. And uh, if you'd also like to, you can leave us a five-star review and tell people to check out some of our work. Uh, you can follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain. Follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod. You can listen to Beep Beep Lettuce, beep, listen to Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever. That's right. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody. Solidarity.